I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is the fourth time I have recorded this introduction to the show for a variety of reasons that will not be made clear to you. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 371. Next week on the show, Monday, May 14th, 2012, the Jazz Session's biggest announcement ever. Huh? That's pretty good. May 14th, 2012, the Jazz Session's biggest announcement ever, so tune in for that show. And in fact, there may even be a special little podcast that stands alone on May 14th, uh, just to tell you what the big announcement is. So just on May 14th, when as soon as you get up in the morning, just tune into the Jazz Session, because it's going to be big. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. He's at twitter.com slash Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. There's a widget for this show. It's just a little piece of code that you can put on your website, and it displays the latest episode of the show, and you can get that at allaboutjazz.com. Just go to the search box there and type in Jazz Session Widget. If you put the widget on your website, let me know, okay? You can just send me an email to jason at thejazzsession.com, and I'll feature you in my newsletter, which goes out each week. You can get that newsletter very simply. Go to thejazzsession.com, and at the top of the page, right under the logo, you'll see a link that says Mailing List. Just click on that, type in your email, and you'll get a newsletter once a week telling you who's on the show with links to listen, and usually links to other things like jazz news and poetry and concert information and that kind of thing. Please join the show, uh, as it is literally your membership that keeps the show going. And as you'll hear next week in the big announcement, it's going to be more important than ever. So please, please, please join the show. You can do that at thejazzsession.com slash join. Please review the show in iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store and search for the Jazz Session and then give it a rating up to five stars and write a nice little review. And that just makes the show go up in the rankings. You can find me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, D as in David. You can also find my poetry at jasoncrane.org, and my book is there as well, Unexpected Sunlight, a collection of poems published in 2010 on Foothills Publishing. My guest today is the saxophonist and composer Steve Lehman. He's been on the show before, uh, talking about one of his larger group projects, and today it's a trio album called Dialect Fluorescent on Pi Recordings. We'll hear music from that album, followed by my conversation with Steve Lehman. Thank you. 
My guest is the composer and saxophonist Steve Lehman. Welcome back to the show. It's great to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So uh, the last time you were here, we were talking about uh, a lot about spectral harmony, and we were talking about a, a work for a larger band. And this time, we're talking about a trio session um, called Dialect Fluorescent. And uh, it's funny because every time I think I just don't want to hear anybody play tunes by other people anymore, along comes a record like this, and I think, oh yeah, I do. I really, <laughs> that's good. I, I really, really do. Actually, as it turns <laughs> out, um, and this this album is exactly the kind of playing tunes by other people I want to hear, which is one that is not mired in the past, but acknowledges that the past occurred. Right. Uh, and so I thought maybe you, we could start just by talking a little bit about, I also want to talk about the trio itself, but just about the the repertoire and why why you chose what for you is a somewhat different direction on this record. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of the repertoire... Um, I suppose, you know, I like the way you put it. I mean, we're sort of uh, feel like um, the work of the music and the playing and the composition of Coltrane and Jackie McLean and all these people. Um, not only is it something that we're, you know, kind of standing on the shoulders of, so to speak, but um, I think it's safe to say that everyone in the trio um, really feels like it's... Um, that music uh, provides a really exciting platform, continues to provide a really exciting platform for, um, you know, uh, contemporary and um, whatever kind of very um, modern kind of approaches to music in all different forms. So that's how we kind of try to approach everything. And, um, and hopefully that comes across in the recording. And, um, you know, so for us, we're just looking as a trio, looking for music that we're excited about, um, that we can really get invested in. And uh, in the case of this recording, you know, some of that was my music and some of it was, was music by others. Um, so it's, you know, it's ho hopefully it ends up being a nice balance. Are there characteristics you can point to, uh, and I guess we'll s stick with other people's music at this point, are there characteristics you can point to about particular compositions that make them the kind of thing the trio can get excited about and invested in? Do they have to have certain characters or certain certain values? Um you know, it's tough to say. I mean, I think everyone who's composing music for improvisers or kind of taking on that uh, challenge is to some extent trying to find a really nice balance um, of, on the one hand, creating a kind of framework and platform for music making that'll challenge everyone to uh, find something new about themselves, find something new, discover something new about music in a best-case scenario, um, and on the other hand, um, sort of leave enough space to let everybody do what they do best and not be so prescriptive so as to kind of remove the possibility for um, everyone to sort of articulate their own personality through music. And that's what I try to do um, as a composer uh, working with, with improvisers. Um, so, you know, pieces that really strike that balance in a really artful and personal way you know, and that can happen a lot, a lot of different in a lot of different manners. Uh, but those tend to be the pieces that we're attracted to. So we do, you know, moments notice um, uh, the John Coltrane composition. There's a lot about that piece that's very challenging, uh, but there's uh, a lot about it that also kind of inspires us to, um, you know, be who we are and kind of hopefully execute that in in new ways. Feel free to correct me on this next statement, but to me, this record one way in which it feels different from your past records is that I would say in that balance between freedom and composition, it has felt to me like in the past, perhaps your records leaned a little more toward the composition side of that spectrum, toward creating not just a framework, but actually a real map of ideas. And that this record feels to me not like it's lacking that, but like it focuses a little more on the leaving of space, on the on the interaction between the parts uh, and I don't mean by saying either of those things to imply that those things weren't present, you know, in the previous record. You've got to watch yourself. Jason. Yes, exactly. I don't want to get in trouble. No. But I think you know where I'm going with yeah. that. And I wonder if it strikes any chord with you or if you think it's not. Yeah, no, not I think that's I think that's uh, I think that's right on. I mean, um, you know, I, I sort of think perhaps if nothing else, there's a little bit more emphasis um, on uh, for one thing on my work as a saxophonist on this album. Um more so than perhaps on other albums I've done where there, at least in terms of the response to the recordings, there seems to be more 
attention paid or a little bit more of a preoccupation with my work as a composer, which is fine. Um, but uh, yeah, I think because of the, the nature of the music and uh, because of the way things are presented, there's more uh, of an opportunity for listeners to kind of engage with who am I, uh, who I am as a saxophonist, um, the way that uh, the three of us uh, interact as musicians, um, in some cases because the material is much more familiar, so there can be more of a kind of emphasis on the interaction amongst the three of us. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the things that were true for the other albums continue to be true, just that, you know, a lot of the music is uh, very specialized uh, in terms of what's required of the performers, um, so that means you have to find... Uh, colleagues and peers and friends that um, have a lot of overlapping musical interests with you so that they're kind of excited about those those musical challenges that we've been talking about and not don't feel like you know they're they have their hands tied or you know that they're being limited in some way so yeah Was presenting yourself as a saxophonist one of the uh, maybe tangential goals of this recording? Um, well, no, not really. I mean, I'm happy to present myself as a saxophonist. I mean, I feel like I've done it before. Um, and, I, you know, the, the last trio album I did was with Mark Dresser and Ferone Ockloff that came out in 2004, I mm -hmm. think. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel like if anyone's... Uh, inclined to go back through other recordings there's plenty of long steve lehman <laughs> solos um but uh but that said you know um the older i get um the you know the being a musician and being invested in music as a life's work um is really about uh, the most important thing is the the social interactions with uh, the people that i work with and the audiences and, and on and on and on um so you know i'm definitely uh, very pleased and, and did want to really highlight um, you know the, the, the interaction and the relationship that uh, Damian Reed and Matt Brewer and I have developed over the years so, so in that way yeah I did that was intentional to kind of spotlight uh, those guys who I love uh, you know as, as people and also as, as players
So uh, this trio really sounds like a band, which is no surprise because it has been a band for right. uh, closing in on a decade now, I guess seven or eight years. Uh, can you talk about how the three of you first played together as a unit? Um, yeah, I think I'm trying to think. I think what it was, this, this isn't the greatest story, is uh, I think Damien had been playing, uh, Damien Reed had been playing in Japan, I uh, forget with whose group, and somebody who presents concerts over there uh, said, you know, I see you've been doing some playing with Steve Lehman, and Steve has worked with Matt Brewer before, and I just think this would make an amazing trio, and we want to bring you guys over here, um, which hasn't happened yet. We haven't been to Japan yet, <laughs> by the way, but uh, and would love to go. But um, but anyway, so Damien, when he got back, said, look, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, it sounds great to me. I love, I had been playing with Matt for a long time. This is probably around 2000 five or six or something like this so we just started you know working together and doing little tours and and trying to build stuff together um and uh it seemed to you know gain a lot of momentum quickly partly because um uh, matt and damion have a long history as well i think they first started playing together in 2001 as uh, part of greg osby's uh last first last rhythm section with uh with jason moran um and did a bunch of playing together so they had that kind of built-in rapport um which i think contributed a lot uh to us being able to kind of move things forward that's actually a really interesting story because i i can't remember someone else telling me that the band was put together but at the suggestion of some other person right and then it turns out to be a great idea yeah yeah (laughs) well you know it's yeah it's true i think you know, I don't have such a large uh, circle of musicians that I, uh, you know, want to collaborate with on a uh, on a regular basis. I ho- I'm trying to expand it, and I hope it expands the older I get. But there are a group of of you know whatever it is, ten, fifteen people that uh, I hope to be working with uh, in different ways and coming back to. Um, you know, for the rest of my life. And, and Matt was definitely one of those people and Damien's one of those people. And, you know, there's plenty of others. So, you know, it was kind of, it was just sort of a, a premise. Uh, sometimes you need that uh, to, in, with everybody's busy lives in New York City to get together. And so, yeah, it's kind of funny, but that's what happened. Yeah. Can you talk about what this trio allows you to do as a saxophone player? What these two behind you or with you allows you to do as a saxophone player? Um. Yeah, I'm trying to think what <laughs> it's so much it's hard to it's hard to put into words. Um you know, um the first track on the album uh is called uh, Allocentric and um there's a saxophone intro and then there's the kind of composition itself. <laughs> That word, allocentric, um, basically refers to a way of uh, orienting yourself in space where you're kind of aware of and responsible for a fixed grid that is the same for everybody, regardless of kind of where they are in space. So I think north, south, east, west, that's sort of like the easiest, at least for me, easiest kind of idea of a kind of uh, allocentric spatial orientation versus... Uh, well, you know, the keyboards on my right or the keyboards underneath me, but depending on where somebody is in space, um, that, you know, might not be the case. Sure. Um, so, you know, and, and this, that kind of way of thinking about orienting ourselves in musical space and being kind of responsible uh, for a fixed grid and, and having our decisions and our choices be informed by that grid, uh, it's a big part of, uh, what a lot of this music is about and my music is is no exception um and uh matt and damien are just really uh masterful at um kind of uh 
integrating and internalizing uh, musical information very quickly and uh, doing things in a very personal way, but always having what they do be uh, informed by the underlying musical materials. So, um, you know, for me as a saxophonist, uh, it's very freeing to know that, um, you know, these guys are always thinking compositionally, they're always thinking creatively, they're always thinking about what they're doing in relation to the music we're playing, they're always taking responsibility uh, for the formal aspects of the music. So that uh, frees me up to make a lot of, you know, kind of different choices as, a, as an improviser, and, and I'm trying to free them up as well. Um, and... Um, you know, it's also very inspiring because uh, in the final analysis, you know, both of them, uh, as a result of their comfort with the material and their creativity as artists, really make my music um, much, much better than I can make it myself. But, and that's kind of the idea. Um, and uh, that goes for, you know, what I can do as a player and what I can do as a composer. So, um, you know, it's one of these things where it's really exciting to, to kind of work on music with them because... Uh, I feel like there's a lot of potential for me to, again, discover new things about my own playing and about music in general. Is the idea of a fixed grid, is that related in some way to the word dialect in the title where the, the fixed grid is created by the language that you share between you, or am I misunderstanding the concept? Uh, maybe a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, I think that's part of it. And uh, like our, our dialect as musicians and as a group, um, part of that term is meant to evoke the fact that, you know, the dialect is always rooted in the the standard language or the mother tongue or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, our own individual dialects and personal dialects are informed by the larger kind of standard language. Um, but, you know, when you talk about a musician's sound, um, it's hard, it's harder and harder to separate that from, um, you know, the sound of their instrument, their phrasing, uh, where they like to play, you know, register-wise on the instrument, and then even beyond that, the kind of musical contexts that they put themselves in, you know, and the kind of musical context that they choose for themselves. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the compositional framework um, that we place ourselves in is part of our language and part of our identities. And, you know, thinking about anybody, just thinking of saxophonists, it's hard to, the sound of Dexter Gordon, it's hard to separate that from the musical context that he used to place himself in. And same thing for like a Julius Hemphill or Oliver Lake. It's really hard to um, separate those guys' sounds as instrumentalists and as musicians from uh, the compositional kind of frameworks that they in, most of the time created for themselves. And is there any way in a, in a chicken egg way to know how those things uh, affect one another, how the sound that you adopt and the musical context you place yourself in, does one of those come first? Are they evolving at the same time? How does that work? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I try to, in my own work, I try to have them um, evolve at the same time and I try to write compositions that are going to open 
things up for me conceptually and also open me up as a player. Um, you know, in my case, I think my work as an instrumentalist, uh, was a little bit more fully formed first, uh, before I started to kind of feel like I was doing something somewhat personal as a composer. Um, but, um, I don't know. It seems like you can kind of trace that kind of stuff. I mean, I know the details, uh, for example, of Jackie McLean's kind of evolution uh, as a saxophonist and as a composer pretty intimately, um, just from sort of pouring over them and talking to him. Um, and uh, it seems like you can point to, you know, events in his life and things he was thinking about that led to, um, you know, choices he made on the instrument in terms of his sound and also compositional choices. So, um yeah, it's really interesting. It's probably different for everybody. As you look back, can you point to similar milestones in your own development so far that caused you to make particular choices on the instrument? No, you can't turn it around on me like that. <laughs> yes, I, <laughs> why, yes, I can. <laughs> um, well, yeah. I mean, some of them are shared with many, many musicians. Uh, for example, like hearing um, hearing uh, Charlie Parker's music for the first time was really kind of a milestone for me and really kind of a point of definition and sort of had that lightning bolt reaction to it that so many others have had when hearing his music for the first time. Um, I remember, uh, for example, uh, being in a class with Jackie McLean and him pulling me aside and saying, you know, uh, your sound, it's too, it's a little bit too harsh. Uh, it sounds a little bit too much like I, you sound a lot like I did like five years ago or something. It's a little too much. So I think you should switch, like kind of make some changes to your setup. And I was so kind of thrilled and on cloud nine that he thought I sounded like him <laughs> uh, five years ago or whatever in some way um, that I was kind of nodding and saying, yeah, I'll change my setup. But in my mind, I was thinking, I'm not changing anything ever. Like, <laughs> if that must have, you know, hit the jackpot if he thinks, because I'll never sound like him. He's too great. You know, there, I'll never sound like him because he's his own person. He's too great. But I've, if I've kind of, I'm evoking something, then that sounds like the right track to me. And uh, and so what did you do as a result of that conversation? I, I just kept I, my setup is the exact same on the <laughs> instrument as it's been since that day, um, you know, in terms of mouthpiece and reeds and everything like that. And, uh, you know, it, but, but it, it stuck out in my mind um, and plenty of others. I mean, I also remember talking to Braxton, Anthony Braxton, uh, when I was in school and working with him and just starting to perform with his groups and him really explaining to me that from his perspective, uh, composition and composing music was really something to look at as an amazing opportunity to define, uh, you know, what you want your music to sound like and what you want your music to be in a very particular way and in a very concrete way. And I should sort of look at it in those terms and sort of think, you know, if I close my eyes and imagine, you know, the best music I could hear at a concert or what I would want my music to sound like, this is the chance to start trying to realize that little by little. Um, and that really resonated with me. And I kind of tell, I share that with my own composition students now and, and still kind of hold on to that ideal as best I can. So yeah, there's a couple, couple little moments there. I think something instructive in that Jackie McLean story is that he, when he said that to you, he apparently was still, even at his level of mastery, working on his own sound and cognizant of his own evolution. And that's a pretty valuable lesson, I think, to take yeah. away from a story like that. <laughs> that's true. That's 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 very true, yeah, because the implication is he wasn't happy with, you know, was still, like you said, making changes to his own sound as of, you know, three years before he told me that or five years or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely the example that he set was just very um, kind of keeping things in a constant state of evolution in terms of his playing and his writing um, and... Uh, you know that that's that's a, a he set the bar incredibly high for for all of us and his students in particular um and uh it's something with him actually just as a side note i feel like gets a little overlooked um that he's more thought of as a kind of second generation bebopper who kind of uh was open to free jazz and recorded with ornette and then kind of went off and taught in hartford and and that was it and did a good job but actually his playing really evolved in leaps and bounds 
in every decade of his life in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties, there's really concrete changes that you can point to. Um, and I remember, uh, in the nineties, the most, uh, I suppose I shouldn't generalize, but a lot of the saxophonists, alto saxophonists I knew really were looking to him and Kenny Garrett and other younger musicians as well, but Kenny Garrett and Jackie in particular for the most kind of contemporary manner of playing the alto saxophone in 1997, 1999. So, uh, and you see that too with like people like Benny Golson, for example, who are really still pushing themselves and it's, it's amazing. Yeah. So the other day I was talking to the guitarist Joel Harrison, and I'm going to paraphrase him a little bit, but he said something like the standard language doesn't really seem to be evolving that much. He said if he goes to a jam session and he hears them playing the same tunes they were playing 20 years ago when he was going to jam sessions, that it's both a little bit comforting and a little bit annoying. And so I wonder from your perspective, do you think the standard language is evolving to incorporate new elements? Yeah, I think it, I think it is, actually. I mean, I suppose... It depends on where you go and and what you're what you're looking for, but um, you know, uh, just looking. I'll, I guess I'll speak about what I know best. But um, just looking at alto saxophonists, for example, um, and the way they might play on a piece of you know kind of common repertoire, whether it be Moments Notice or uh, you know yes or no or Cherokee or whatever. Um, I feel like there's been quite a bit of evolution there. Um, and if you take, I won't go too back far in history, but if you look at, you know, some of, uh, Charlie Parker's idols like Buster Smith and, and Jimmy Dorsey, um, you know, and then go to Parker and look at that evolution and then look at the way that, uh, Jackie McLean or Cannonball would play on Cherokee. That's pretty different already. And, and Jackie, for example, having passed through Mingus's ensemble, it's a whole nother kind of set of expectations about how you deal with standard repertoire, you know, starting in the mid fifties. Um, and, you know, I think same thing. I mean, even if whether, you know, we can, I would include Braxton in that discussion. Uh, some, some wouldn't, um, same thing in the seventies, the way that like somebody like Gary Bartz, I mean, not to be too laborious and go through point by point, but, uh, you know, listen to his recordings of standard repertoire um, or what, you know, his expectation would be to hear somebody do on a standard. Uh, it's another set of criteria in terms of, you know, how you approach things in terms of chromaticism and language um, and, uh, you know, on and on. And uh, I guess I suppose Arthur Blythe is, is another one that, not everyone would include in the the, the su sort of super canon, but um, even somebody like Kenny Garrett. I mean, there's plenty of record uh, videos on YouTube of of him playing when he seems you know must be in his 20s, and that band with Woody Shaw and Freddie Hubbard that he played with. There's a video of him playing on I forget what tune, April in Paris, or I can't remember. And Dizzy Gillespie's there, and he's you know Kenny Garrett's playing his language, and I and I think 
you know, the point is that it wouldn't it wouldn't cut it if he was just kind of regurgitating uh, Cannonball's approach or regurgitating Charlie Parker lines uh, or sounding just like Phil, Phil Woods or something. And, you know, the, the expectation is that you articulate something very personal uh, and, and certainly, you know, Kenny lives up to that ideal. Um, and, uh, you know, anyways, on and on and on. Um, and, uh, you know, the way Greg Osby plays and you know um and i suppose you know at a jam session um you know the, i guess i won't go into the social dynamics of, of of all of that but i think uh big picture it seems like the the expectation is 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 really that you're going to do something be able to do something incredibly personal and identifiable and distinctive in the context of uh, standard repertoire. And, uh, you know, even looking at some of my contemporaries, when I look at uh, people like um, Rudrish Mahanthapa, for example, is a good friend of mine and somebody I've recorded with, uh, you know, he has an incredibly distinctive voice. And that's uh, part of the reason why he's uh, in Jack DeJeanette's ensemble right now, you know. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if he got there I'm sure he's played at plenty of jam sessions, uh, in, maybe not recently, but uh, maybe he has. Um, and, you know, same thing with, with uh, Miguel Zanon, another friend of mine. I feel like, uh, you know, he has a very distinctive approach to playing standard repertoire, and that's uh, that's, you know been remarked upon and people relate to that uh both audience members and listeners so that's i think it's encouraging you know yeah. that 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 kind of thing is um you know that that articulation of personality in the context of sort of shared repertoire is something that people can really relate to and identify um you know so anyways that's the kind of perspective i, I look at it with so one way to look at history is this kind of great man theory where history changes because of the work of remarkable individuals, uh, and it kind of ignores the effects of society on those people. It's just a series of remarkable men, and it's, of course it's always men, who by their appearance on the scene change uh, whatever the scene is that we're talking about. So in the case of the evolving language of jazz, do we think it's the same kind of thing where uh, it's just a series of geniuses who by their appearance in the music completely change the language or are they being affected? Are they in some way like a culmination of what's around them uh, and they're just expressing it maybe in the clearest way or can we not really know? Uh, well, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting to think about. It's hard to know. Um, I think, you know, everyone has their own kind of set of uh, people that are important, important markers of changes in musical history, which obviously uh, do happen in, in a kind of historical and, and, and social context. Um, I suppose, you know, I tend to be somebody that points to key practitioners as a way of sort of situating my own music and getting away from getting away from the J word, I guess, when, as, as much as not as much as possible, but when it's just because it's so broad and, uh, you know, to say that I'm a jazz musician, um, like we all know, means a lot of different things to different people. So I found it very useful to point to key practitioners to kind of provide some context. Um, but, uh, you know, it's hard to say. I know uh, I'll keep talking about what I know. I guess um, you know Jackie McLean uh, talked a lot about, and even in some interviews has this. I'm looking at it right now. This uh, Ben Ben Sidran interview talks about uh, not being able to um, learn kind of material from Charlie Parker solos at first because it was too difficult and it was too fast. And uh, modeling his playing at times off of uh, Rudy Williams, who was the alto player with the Savoy Sultans for a long time because it was sort of a more uh, accessible, somebody who had internalized a good deal of Parker's vocabulary, but had, you know, was sort of producing it in a way that was easier to kind of get access to so rudy williams you know his name doesn't come up very much um i like to i like to bring it up when somebody an older musician tries to you know play elder statesman say have you checked out earl bostic or have you checked out this person i'm, like, ah, I'm actually more into rudy williams um <laughs> just to kind of level the playing field um but uh you know that's somebody who you know that's an important part of uh of uh of the lineage of the music and who made a and 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 I have gone back and checked out his music made a great contribution to 
everyone's development in a certain sense. So, um, yeah, I think that stuff is, is hard to pinpoint. I think the more you dig into the history and testimonials and, and the sound of, of, uh, the music. Um, but yeah, so anyways, Rudy Williams, that's somebody who I think, um, you know, kind of is, stands, uh, his work stands the argument against, you know, the kind of great man theory that, mm. that you say, but, um, and yeah, I, you know, I have to, I don't know if I can backtrack. I mean, in terms of my alto saxophone pantheon, um, there might not for the time being be a, be a woman that I can think of plenty of wonderful women saxophonists, but I didn't mention any, but certainly, you know, there's people like, like Betty Carter and, uh, you know Michelle Rosewoman and, and and others that you know kind of play uh important role in similar sense but uh they just didn't yeah, come yeah, up for the alto saxophone <laughs> discussion fun. unfortunately back to dialect fluorescent this is an album that combines both your compositions and other people's music and so i'm wondering about how you crafted it to actually hang together as an album for example did you already know which other people's tunes you were going to play and then compose tunes of your own to complement those and, and flesh it out into an album we had you know our we have uh, as a trio our repertoire of things we do on a regular basis i don't know how many pieces it's probably 20 pieces or 25 pieces something like that so all that can't end up on the album um unless it was a double cd or something but um you know so we recorded a bunch of stuff the day we were in the studio and and then i kind of went back and figured out kind of what would hopefully make a, a nice program and fit together and i don't know uh, if anyone listens to recordings from start to finish anymore but uh, i'm still kind of optimistic that somewhere uh, someplace someone's doing that and I, I try to do that so that's kind of how the album's oriented i'm guessing that everyone on this couch yes yes I that's speak for the world beyond this room. That's right. Well, that makes me that makes me feel good. That there's, yeah, that's the, that's the two of us. So that's that's, that's comforting. Um, but uh, you know, um, uh, it's not an accident either that uh, you know there's a piece by John Coltrane on there, and there's a piece by Jackie McLean because those that's, that's probably my number one and number two in terms of uh, you know people whose music I continue to model pretty much everything I do uh, off of, even when it's in very diverse kind of settings, um, Jackie, I guess, being the number one. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the pure imagination, the arrangement of pure imagination from Willy Wonka uh, uh, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I always forget the, the title of the book versus the movie. Um, that is just something that I thought would work well, and, uh, it, you know, those guys really brought it to life, and I was really thrilled with the take that we got uh, in the studio. I think that's the best it's ever sounded. Um, so that kind of had to go on there. And, uh, and that is also one that you play in your standard interview. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, and, and then just trying to find, you know, Janine, the Duke Pearson tune. Um, 
That one, we've just finished a week-long tour along the East Coast, and that tune um, ended up being like the biggest crowd pleaser uh, to our, to our, much to our, you know, we're pleasantly surprised by that. Um, just because, well, I don't know, because probably for all different reasons, but part of the reason is it really features uh, Damien Reed's brushwork. And he's a really uh, master uh, master with playing brushes and the kind of transition from him playing brushes to moving to sticks. There's oftentimes a real directionality to to when we perform it. It really feels like the piece is kind of is going somewhere and kind of evolves into something in a really organic way. Um, so that you know that piece also was nice to have on the record to kind of highlight that. And it's a it's a different texture. I mean, with with, with three people. Um, usually is is helpful to think in terms of the kind of different colors that you can get so that's one way have him play brushes have another piece where uh, it starts out just saxophone and bass or just uh, drums and bass and you know try to kind of frame the material in that way i know you've got some more live shows coming up that folks can check out can you mention when those are yeah, sure. Um, so uh, in early June, uh, the trio uh, is going to be at the Jazz Gallery for three nights on uh, June 7th and June 8th and June 9th. Um, and uh, that'll be sort of our New York City CD release kind of event. And um, I think it'll be particularly nice because each night we're going to invite um, a kind of special guest uh, pianist to join us. So on Friday, uh, David Vareles uh, will be with us um, on, uh, did I say Thursday? Thursday, David will be with us on Friday. Uh, Vijay Iyer will be the guest with the trio. And then on Saturday, um, James Hurt, a great pianist, will will, um, will be sitting in with us um, for both sets. Um, so we're really excited about, you know, kind of how that's, we'll probably each set play two or three pieces, just the trio, and then kind of invite the pianist to join us for a few pieces as well. Um, so, you know, obviously excited to see what those guys are going to bring to the music and that's really interesting because for me, a big part of why I like this record so much is that there is no chordal instrument. There's so much space to navigate around for you guys. So what gave you the idea of, of putting a chordal instrument in there? You know, I thought it would be, um, a nice idea, uh, to kind of, um, have someone different with us each night and also a way to, um, to kind of take advantage of the fact that, um, the repertoire on the album and the repertoire that we do as a trio is very challenging, um, but also kind of highlights uh, interaction amongst the musicians. So, um, you know, this is a kind of body of music where we can uh, invite somebody to, to join us and kind of interact with us in a really meaningful way um, in a way that I couldn't really do with, for example, the music on uh, my last uh, octet recording or one of my quintet recordings, just because, um, the sort of the process of kind of internalizing the music and getting comfortable with it um, is a little bit more um, it's a little bit more complicated it's a little bit more involved so it seemed like it, it would be meaningful to kind of take advantage of this music being sort of structured in a slightly different way and invite more people to kind of you know create with us and people whose music I really really uh, uh, have learned a lot from and or I'm starting to learn from just playing with David uh, recently um, we've done a couple things and uh, and same thing with James Hurd I've admired his music for a long time so this will be a chance for us to get into it and have you done that before with the trio have you invited guests in with the trio um I feel like we have I can't think of a oh yes um we did a recording uh for the BBC uh, oh, when, right. yep. where we had uh, the great uh, British trumpet player Byron Wallen uh, played with us on, on several uh, pieces for that recording. It was right before we played in London uh, this past summer. Or two, yeah, this past summer in June. Um, so yeah, and that seemed, it seemed to work really well um, and uh, was, I think, pretty, pretty gratifying for everybody. So yeah. So June here in New York at the Jazz Gallery and then the trio travels... Yeah, we're going to um, head to Europe in the beginning of October. We'll be there for a little longer than a week. Um, and same thing, those will be sort of the, the CD release shows uh, in Europe. That's That'll be the first time we're there um, since the release of the CD. We were there this past summer. Um, and then we'll be back again uh, in spring uh, 2013. It's hard to think that far ahead, but uh, I suppose that's the way it goes. You have to book everybody in advance. Yeah, so. true enough. 
And for the listeners, please go to thejazzsession.com and look in the show notes for this episode, and you will find Steve's website linked there, and so you can find all his upcoming appearances. I think there are as many listeners in Europe as there are in the States to this show, so please get out there and support Steve and the band when they come over. Steve, the uh, the album Dialect Fluorescent on Pi Recordings is great, and uh, once again, it's great to have you on the show. It's been really fun to talk to you. Yeah, same. Thank you so much, Jason. Appreciate it. That's music from Steve Lehman and his new album on Pi Recordings called Dialect Fluorescent. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Don't forget, on Monday, May 14th, 2012, The Jazz Session's biggest ever announcement. Oh, it's exciting. What else? Join the show, jazzsession.com slash join. Sign up for the mailing list at thejazzsession.com. Click on mailing list. I think that's about it and then please get out there if you would and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the jazz session <laughs>